This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast for September 25th, 2009. I'm Andrew Whitaker, Communications Manager for the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. This podcast features Hannah Rose Schell, a historian and media artist and an assistant professor in MIT's Program on Science, Technology, and Society. Her colloquium talk discusses camouflage, framed by the question of how not to be seen in film, on film, and as film. Our visitors from the STS program and associated programs. Um, before we start tonight, actually, I'd like to make an announcement that has a great import to the CMS community, and it is that we have a um, associate director to the program. Ian Condry has agreed to uh, to join CMS in a leadership position, and that's terrific. It's uh, it's really terrific news. So the details are all working, being worked out, but it's. Um, it's there, so fabulous. Welcome, Ian. So. so I know all I would say is I look forward to hearing everybody's opinions and advice and experience uh, in the coming uh, semester and year uh, as we seek to remake CMS 2.0. Uh, <laughs> Great. Thanks. Okay, well, it's a, really pr it's a privilege to welcome a new colleague uh, here to MIT. Hannah Rochelle is going to uh, uh, be speaking tonight. Uh, she's an assistant professor in the um, Science, Technology, and Society program. And she's also affiliated with CMS, so that's really terrific. Uh, our relationship, the relationship with CMS, goes back a bit because Hannah uh, produced one of her films was uh, produced with one of our alum. And um, I guess what's remarkable, and just sort of looking over your, your CV and your, your, your plans, is the kind of range of activities, and especially the range of, of modalities through which um, Hannah's work uh, takes form. So film is obviously one, and she's made a, a, a couple of really, the secondhand Pepe is one I know well, and it's terrific. Um, and let's see here, there's, uh, yeah, the, the, the film on Marais uh, motion, which is called Locomotion in Water, is also a stunner. It was at last year's, um, Media Spectacle, and I think one, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, but she also does multimedia installations, and has uh, uh, her work has been exhibited in uh, Boston and Los Angeles. Some of that work deals with the topic she's talking about tonight on camouflage. Her new book, um, and I assume some of your talk is going to come from that work, uh, is called Hide and Seek, Camouflage and the Media of Reconnaissance. It's coming out with Zone Books through MIT Press this spring. Um, and you've also edited a, uh, a, a book that was published in 1889, American Bison, with the Smithsonian. So uh, that's quite a range of stuff. Book, multimedia, film, and tonight performance. So Hannah, welcome, and uh, it's yours. Thanks so much. And just, just let me know if you can't hear me, if you want me to speak louder or softer, if I'm, if I'm too loud. <laughs> um, it's really great to be here. And uh, I want to thank CMS for inviting me um, both to affiliate with the program, um, but also to be a participant in the CMS Colloquium Series. Uh, and I especially want to thank William. Um, like he said, uh, my first familiarity with CMS actually um, came well before I started teaching at MIT. Um, but was actually through kind of co-producing, co-directing uh, a film with Vanessa Bertozzi, who was a, um, at the time was in the program. And uh, it was a really wonderful experience. I was a grad student in history of science at the time at, at Harvard. <laughs> um, 
But she was at CMS, and we actually ended up kind of producing and editing the movie half at Harvard and half at MIT. Um, actually, in you know one of these CMS offices, there's this sort of web. I mean, MIT at the time just seemed like a crazy maze. It still seems like a crazy maze, but at the time it was especially a crazy maze. And uh, I really enjoyed just you know getting the the kind of showing the work to people in one institution and then at CMS, and it was a great experience. So it's very exciting to be here again, um, but in a different, very different capacity. So like William said, um, I'm a new assistant professor in STS, uh, the Science, Technology, and Society program. Um, and I'm currently teaching a course on the rise of modern science. And uh, I'm preparing for next spring two courses. Um, one is called Science in the Cinema, Experiments on Film, um, which I hope might be of interest to some CMS folks. Um, and then also a graduate seminar in the process of thinking and, and academic writing. So it's kind of like a seminar for grad students to work on writing skills. Um, that's STS 390, but one of the ideas that I have is to kind of bring in thinking from work in other modalities. Um, you know, how can experiences people have maybe had producing work or expressing ideas in non-written media uh, inform and kind of help people um, think through the process of writing, you know, master's theses or graduate theses. Um, so I'm hoping that'll be a good class. Uh, so I'm a historian of science uh, and technology, as well as a filmmaker and visual artist by training. And in my presentation today, in the spirit of interdisciplinarity, I want to draw on my interest in blending academic work with what I might call kind of embodied practice um, and the kinds of collaborative projects that I've, I've worked on kind of outside of the academic sphere previously. So as a framing concept for this evening, I suggest we consider together the question of how not to be seen, in film, on film, as film. This question and its address speaks to various relationships among military technology, cinema, and ecology. Though I will stay focused in my talk tonight on an analysis of some World War II filmmaking on the one hand, and a presentation of my own filmmaking work on the other hand, the themes I'm talking about I present elsewhere in relation to more contemporary media practices. Um, and just to show two such practices, these include experimental films, such as the work of Stan Brackage, um, and you can see two frames on right and left, and also mainstream blockbuster films, something that might be considered extremely uh, on the other end of things. Um, for example, the Predator series. Um, and something I've been talking about recently with some people at Harmonix, at the video game, uh, producers in Central Square is kind of how to think through some of my ideas of camouflage as it emerges in these World War I pedagogical frameworks in relation to some of these stealth, stealth first-person shooter games and, and the role of sort of camouflage and motifs of camouflage play there. Um, so my talk will have two parts, and the first is broken into two sections, which is section one and two up here. In the first section, I'll lay out a bit of what is meant by the question of how not to be seen, or at least what I think is meant by that question, in film and in nature. The aspiration for an actualization of concealment in these two sites through mixed media practices that I argue simultaneously incorporate and subvert various photographic media of reconnaissance, such as still photographs, stereo photographs, or dynamic cinema, as constituting the crux of camouflage media. 
In the second part of my talk, I want to get specific and take this idea of how not to be seen and take it to, to think about the work of a specific artist by the name of Len Lai. Len Lai is today best known for his experimental animations of the 1930s. For example, a famous film called Color Box of 1935, as well as his kinetic sculptures of the 1950s. But today I'll focus on a film called Killer Be Killed, produced in 1942, released both non-theatrically and then theatrically in 1943, in the midst of the deepest, darkest British fears of Nazi invasion. This film I want to present as an artifact, as a site at which to read a set of changes reshaping media and military practices more generally during this period. So I'll trace in Len Lai's work, and there's just the title frame of the main film I'll talk about, both his live action work and his animated work, something I call dynamic camouflage, the third species of camouflage within a larger project following on static and serial forms of camouflage. The story I'll tell about this film is an ontogeny within a larger phylogeny. I argue that in Killer Be Killed, Lai reconfigured a model of educational filmmaking at the emulsive, structural, and diegetic levels along terms consistent both with the aspirations of camouflage itself and, I should like to add, Lai's own direct animation film practices of the preceding decade. Lai's work, I show, was both an experiment and an education in how to look, how to hide, and how to move. So how not to be seen is a problem that extends from you know, the late 19th century. How not to be seen in relation to photographs extends from the late 19th century into the 20th century, and certainly today. Um, camouflage is experiential, accessed at the level of phenomenology as much as anything else. And in the third part of my presentation, I'll show a work in progress. Well, actually, it's basically a finished work in project, progress, I hope, about one might say the phenomenology of camouflage. It's called blind. Blind is in blindness. And blind is in that actively constructed structure intended for the concealment of a hunter from her game. A ghillie or sniper suit is in this context a portable hunting blind, bound to one's own body. This film I began as part of a series of performance and installation pieces from in summer 2008. Um, and actually the collaborator with whom I developed that project is sitting in the audience, Dan Hazel. he should wave. And you'll see him in the film, although he's not identifiable because he's in camouflage. <laughs> Okay, so on to part one, how not to be seen. In the Monty Python skit, HM Government, Public Service Film Number 42, also known as How Not to Be Seen, a disembodied narrator voiced by John Cleese instructs viewers about how not to be seen. In this image of nature are many men. None of them can be seen. In this film, you will learn how not to be seen. And how many of you have seen this, this skit? We're just going to watch a little, a little clip. So I think that even just this little clip from the skit 
makes it very clear just how hard it is to make a film that shows you how not to be seen. In the skit, presented with views of different rural landscapes, viewers are alerted to the existence of an invisible subject camouflaged somewhere within each. The voice eventually identifies the human subject within each landscape, first obscured and then exposed. A prompt explosion and audience laughter, like your own, inevitably ensues. Um, this was true, actually, except when I showed this clip in China. And I don't know, this, uh, this skit ends with a, um, a mushroom cloud. And in general, actually, people kind of continue to laugh and laugh and laugh. And when I showed it in China, it was a really big audience, and people actually got terrified. Like, it, you know, um, so in general, how long the laughter lasts kind of depends on the context. But, but laughter does inevitably ensue, at least for a while. As the spoof educational film draws to a close, the disembodied voiceover materializes in the form of John Cleese at an oak desk in an open field, and then he too explodes. The irony of how not to be seen is simultaneously explosive and profound, containing at the same time a poignant and potent reality. In how not to be seen, the only subject implicated by the film that actually knows and performs how not to be seen is the viewer, is you, which might be why you can laugh the student, allegedly, on the other side of the screen. We are, at least within this framework, outside the film, occupying, in fact, the position of the cinematographer, who, who somehow doesn't ever get, get destroyed. And yet, in the so-called real world, outside the world of the flying circus, and outside the dark space of the theater, the human subject of cinematic instruction is often already an object of photographic and even cinematic surveillance. As here, in this photograph, for example, on the right, taken from the projection booth at the back of a 1918 American Army how-to training session on aerial photography, and in particular, aerial photographic interpretation. So here you see um, the soldiers receiving a lecture on how to interpret photographs taken from, you know, from an aerial perspective to try to determine where the enemy camouflage has been laid. Um, and on the actually... On the, on the left, you see um, not the same group of people, but a, a different group of Ameri World War I American troops um, getting instruction on, on individual personal concealment. So in science, nature, war, and documentary filmmaking alike, learning the art of how not to be seen is no joke at all. And rather, it's part and parcel of learning how to see, how to be in nature and in relation to the photographic lens. So some of you may have seen this photograph before because I'm very, very fond of it, um, at least the STS folks here. How not to be seen. The British War Office first distributed this pedagogical image in 1916 to members of the British Army and its allies. I present it as a figure through which to think through the problem of learning how not to be seen. So in this photograph, a wooden stick points to the subject of instruction, invisible by definition camouflage, and you can see the wooden stick pointing straight to the camouflage. An image that says everything, then, in revealing nothing, because there seems to be nothing there. The arm-like implement reaches up into the photographic frame. The rod, a prosthetic extension of someone out of the frame, a drill sergeant, photographer, directs the viewer's attention to what the image's title implies should be a craftily concealed human being, a model sniper, a perfect sniper lurking in what appears to be tall, weedy grass. So let's assume, first of all, that there is a man there somewhere in this photograph, wrapped in blankets, maybe, painted in dirt, decorated in leaves, netting, and so on. 
In producing this unsettling visual training instrument, its makers aim to suggest if and when you need to hide, emulate the hidden human subject, the alleged sniper in the grass. To do so, it would seem to say, be like an arctic hare, evolved to blend into its snowy landscape, one of the animals who, whose protective coloration fascinated the visual and particularly photographically inclined natural historians of the 1870s. Or, as in this document, produced by one of those photographically inclined artists and natural historians, which is a photograph of a dead stuffed woodland grouse, posed as if to argue that in fact the woodland grouse isn't there. So I don't know if you guys can see the woodland grouse. There's no wooden stick. Or, like the pepper moth pictured here on the left, whose protective coloration in the 1880s and 1890s, changing along with the increasingly sooty woodlands of northern England, made it the textbook case illustrating evolution by natural selection. So likewise, the photograph might say, immerse yourself and your own sighting devices, your eyes, your binoculars, your rifle sights, into the landscape so that you appear to disappear within its sculptural and textural contours, whatever those may be, wherever you are, whenever you find yourself in need of photographic concealment. Become where you are so as to disappear, at least from a particular and photographic point of view. So disappearance is within this pedagogical regime always from something, in this case from photographic exposure, and from the perceptual capabilities of the resulting photograph's viewer. Do as the sniper does, and you can see actually um, on the left you see, well he's not very well concealed, but um, the, uh, the man on the, on the left, or the, the figure on the left is, is uh, He's the head curator of uniforms. I just have to tell this great story. Um, he's the curator of, of uniforms at the Imperial War Museum in, um, in England, in London. And he gave me a tour of like all the uniforms which are housed in a milita the military, sort of these old barracks outside of London near, the, near the, um, like this old airplane factory. And he's walking me through and I'm looking for sniper uniforms. And, and he, he doesn't seem to have any, he can't really find anything, and he, he's looking and looking, and he says, well, you know, even if we do find something, don't ask me to try anything on, because I'm not one of those uniform curators that likes to put stuff on. Like, <laughs> I'm not one of those guys. And actually, my, um, my, my, I was working on, on the secondhand Pepe film um, with my CMS uh, student collaborator, and she was working on her... Um, master's thesis at the time about like, well, we, it's sort of partially about reenactment and she was working on this project about reenactment and putting on costumes and stuff and I was like, sure, I'm sure you don't like to try on those uniforms. And anyway, then we found this uniform which had been miscatalogued as like a, I don't know, like a World War II nurse's uniform. And he got, and he was so excited and he says to me, can I try it on? <laughs> <laughs> so I was really thrilled. Um, but needless to say, this wasn't the right environment for it to blend in. Um, but, um, but perhaps, you know, it was, it was coming out of, a, out of a space more like the image on the right. So let's step back a bit again and return to this photograph. Where is the sniper? Is there a sniper? We kind of assumed at first there was a sniper. Examining the image, you become its analyst, its interpreter, as well as its prospective future subject. In this regard, the photograph is uncomfortable and hard to read. 
it's hider who is also a seeker is even harder to see. So maybe we're the ones who've been tricked, or maybe we're just not showing up. In this sense, I argue that the photograph is an artifact of an instructional paradigm aimed at the cultivation of photographic invisibility, as well as a call on the part of its viewers for visual skepticism, wherein one is asked to occupy a position of both the inhabitant of the proto-photographic environment, which is to say, to become like the kind of person who, if they existed in that field, would not be seen in this photograph, but to also occupy the position of the, of the kind of interpreter of such a photograph. So one sort of is being asked to exist both inside the photograph and outside the photograph. You're supposed to be the invisible referent, but you're also supposed to be the kind of invisible reader. This is camouflage in its static form. That is to say, an articulation in the realm of still or instantaneous photographic documentation. Camouflage, as I theorize it in particular, refers to the state and means of protective concealment from photographic detection, operating as a logic of visual and material interaction between oneself and one's environment, as seeing with and through photographs. It manifests itself at levels both institutional and individual, industrial and embodied. Protective concealment here denotes the effect of a form's visual non-presence within, within a proto-filmic environment as perceived or not from a particular perspective within a given interval of time. So here, in the realm of a kind of moment or a kind of extended duration that inhabits a single photograph, but it might actually be kind of invisibility as registered by a series of frames, of kind of frames marked over time, or in a kind of dynamic environment of movement. <clears throat> the means affecting photographic disappearance are always specific to both the form of the entity, the site, and the presumed predator's viewpoint. Emerging out of a late 19th century evolutionary study and visual documentation of protective coloration in nature, which you can see a kind of peculiar document of on the left, camouflage unfolded in time and space across disciplinary and discursive boundaries over the first half of the 20th century, becoming an adaptive logic of escape from photographic representation often modeled off a of photographic documentation of, of um, protective concealment in the realm of non-human nature. So on the left, you can see a collage which is actually produced out of reconfigured owl skins, which are collaged in such a way as to instantiate perfect environmental adaption. And you can see that actually, I don't know if you can, you probably can't see actually, but basically in the production of this photograph by like a late 19th century American artist turned camouflage innovator, um, he basically took the, the wings of a, of a dead owl and he photographed them and he cut them out and he overlaid them on a photograph he'd taken of the environment in which he'd killed the owl. And then he took a photograph of the whole thing in which he claims you can no longer see the owl and use this as proof of the grand camouflaging qualities of the world. Oh. Great idea. Let's see. Other way. Other way? This way? Yeah, so you can see um, there's, some, there's some owl wings right there. Um, <clears throat> so such work with animals actually inspired the production of a model, model invisible man, which you can see on the right, cut out of his own photographic background. So here you can see, um, here's the idea that you... If you want to find a man, if you want to make a man blend into his environment in the same way that this owl seems to be able to blend into his environment, 
you just make him in the shape of a man cut out of a photograph of his environment. And you can see, you might also want to have a photographer. There's a, there's a man with a camera mysteriously up there in the tree, kind of keeping tabs on the photographic invisibility being affected by the, the big stone man over here. So this logic of escape from detection developed in a kind of rhizomatic fashion of enfolding in first static forms as shown here, then serial forms in relation to aerial photographic time-lapse um, reconnaissance of which Siegfried Krakauer uh, wrote quite a lot about, and finally in and through dynamic motion filmmaking, which I'd like to talk about now. So this brings us to the next sections um, of my presentation, first into a short kind of historical inquiry and analysis of a particular camouflage film, and then to my own media practice. Fieldcraft is filmcraft. Killer be killed. In August 1943, New York Times film critic Thomas Pryor announced the arrival in U.S. theaters of a series of topical shorts from the United Kingdom. They were screening at the Museum of Modern Art, of all places, and were sponsored by the British Information Services, a branch of the War Office. Of these, one film stood out, quote, an especially exciting, a brilliantly executed piece of pure, yes, pure cinema, which goes by the title Killer Be Killed. It's the true story of the stalking and counterstalking of a British sergeant and a Nazi sniper, in which the two snipers, resorting to various tricks of camouflage, hunt each other through open fields and woodland. Originally commissioned as a public service film and a civilian training film, Killer Be Killed was a unique kind of pedagogical film. It was an experiment in hide-and-seek by the avant-garde animation and kinetic artist Len Lai. In May 1942, the Ministry of Information had commissioned the Realist Film Unit, started by Basil Wright and his brother in 1937, to prepare a treatment and script for an educational film on strategic concealment. The Realist Film Unit was a production group organized on the collaborative model of John Grierson's famous General Post Office filmmaking group of the 1930s, which had been kind of foundational in establishing the modern documentary film movement. The unit put Len Lai, whose groundbreaking animations had also been sponsored by the General Post Office in the pre-war years, in charge of the documentary production or what was called before it was made and after it was made a documentary production, even though it wouldn't actually seem to meet many of the criteria that we might ascribe to documentary. If all went well, the Ministry of Information planned to incorporate the film into its so-called mobile cinema program. This mobile cinema program was an itinerant educational program that exhibited wartime preparedness training films in factories, churches, schools, and hospitals. And actually what would happen I mean, it didn't actually end up getting done too much with this film, but you had all of these, like, vans and bicycles um, with these kind of mobile projectors. And so the Ministry of Information would kind of go town to town and factory to factory and school to school, usually with, like, you know, a bicyclist and a guy in a van. And um, they would kind of set up little theaters, and ideally all the people would come and get scared from snipers. Um, the film would also end up actually in commercial theaters throughout England and Scotland and then eventually throughout the United States. Both its producers and distributors considered Lies film as an instructional documentary. Instructional in a way in the sense of actually this 1918 
uh, glass lantern slide instructional series that we saw a slide from before. It was intended to train both civilians and soldiers, but most especially it was part of the Home Guard movement, which was kind of aimed at educating civilians even more than the infantry, to kind of prepare and mobilize as a kind of everyman soldier. The goal was to prepare such civilians and infantry to be alert, ready to hide from the Nazis wherever and whenever they lurked. One might think here of the famous phrase first used in this period, look, duck, vanish. But kill or be killed's formal and discursive structures were relatively unique among training films of the era. So in most traditional military educational training films, and in fact in most training films up to this time, and actually after this time, um, the narrator provided instruction on how to perform certain behaviors. And these are just two frames from a, a kind of another camouflage training film made in, well, in 1943, so made right after Kill or Be Killed. Good examples of kind of behaviors would be loading a gun, finding due north with a compass, or doing a math problem. A generalized self, which I could call a model person, performed a task on screen fully visible to the camera and the viewer alike. The goal, you were told, was to kind of do what you see the person doing in the film. The model person served as a direct illustration of the lesson at hand. Look, do this, then do that, then do this, a narrator would say in a kind of school teacher fashion. This model of instructional film and the kind of ironic way in which camouflage doesn't really work well with it is part of what's being parodied in the Vietnam era Monty Python skit, How Not to Be Seen, which we saw earlier. Right? I mean, part of the joke is that you can't really make a film about how not to be seen in which you show people not being seen. Do this, do that. Of course, that breaks down fast, as those of you who have seen that full skit recall, right? When it becomes clear that if you create a scenario in which you can just copy how people are hiding, they're not really going to be hiding. And if you're actually, if your life, if your life depends on hiding, it's, it's going to fall apart. So a different model is laid out in this film, Killer Be Killed. It's a different model for instruction in a kind of filmic disappearance. Killer Be Killed, in contrast to standard educational film, was non-expository, and as the New York Times described it, there was no dialogue except for an occasional voice representing the silent thoughts and fears which run through the soldiers' minds. So in a sense, Lai's film had no voiceover and no lesson plan. There was no single model person. Instead, Kill or Be Killed's pedagogy offered, operated in a different register. And this register is thematized in the progression of stills here, a progression through what I understand as the logic of camouflage. There's a kind of concealment of vision and a filmic immersion of self-erasure. There's hiding, or a thesis of hiding, an antithesis of kind of seeking. And then what I don't, I won't be able to fully kind of lay out here, but... Um, a kind of cinematic synthesis as immersion into nature and into film, as one and the same process of self-fashioning and examination. Meanwhile, at a material level too, the film's fabrication was specific to an aesthetic and embodied practice of learning to see as learning how not to be seen. Close analysis of Kill or Be Killed, I suggest, reveals a model for educational film form simultaneously experimental and instructional in positioning relationships among viewers, subjects, cameras, and filmmakers. So in the first half of the 20th century, camouflage had emerged as a set of scientific and craft practices. Its goal was precisely to elude filmic detection. Systematic techniques 
for static concealment were derived from natural history study and realist art practices, in particular the increasing reliance on photographic objectivity as a visual tool. Camouflage emerged in response to photographic reconnaissance and optical surveillance in the years leading up to and including the First World War. As Paul Virilio has shown, this went along with the emergence of new military logistics, a logistics of perception, as he says, in which images themselves became weapons of war. Now, whereas Virilio has tended to see human subjects within this system as passive victims a sort of a sort of paranoid machinic tyranny, or at least that's my read on, on Virilio, I actually understand camouflage in a different context, as kind of worked through in my own film practice and also in my analysis of, of films like Killer Be Killed. I understand camouflage to be bound more to a kind of creative activity, a constant innovation at the level of the individual and of the human, artist, viewer, or soldier, a kind of incorporation of the techniques of surveillance, and a kind of bricolage based on that incorporation, which creates new media constantly, creating kind of new schemes for self-concealment and the construction of kind of a new set of, of identities. Let's see. Camouflage, by definition, I would say, had a symbiotic and combative relationship then with photographic and filmic image making and detection practices. Here, as laid out in a key sequence from Kill or Be Killed, large scale camouflage is seen to precipitate a reconceptualization of self concealment in terms of new systems for movement, adornment, and tactics, particularly in relation to the camera. By fieldcraft, <coughs> which I, I, I Sorry, this new fieldcraft developed distinctly in relation to concepts of photographic detection. And by fieldcraft, I refer to strategy and tactics for hiding and seeking in a dynamic terrestrial environment. Strategic concealment became an embodied and immersive experience. One should always already exist as both subject and viewer of a photograph in which one cannot be seen. As a 1942 handbook on fieldcraft put it, One's brain must be constantly active and on the alert, thinking ahead, so to speak, taking advantage of ground and cover, light and shade, wind, noise, rain, mist, snow, ever on the alert and looking out for the camera. Close quote. Creative use of features of the natural landscape, leaves, branches, mud, and textile materials, rags, raffia, painted canvas, ecological collage, as I call it elsewhere, were essential here. Thus, for example, quote, Use the country, become part of the earth upon which you walk or lie or hide. Make yourself invisible with leaves or earth stains or with lightly teased strips of bark. Close quote. Learning how to disappear from film in particular, reconnaissance planes above and rifle sights below, as a kind of second nature, which was the subject of Len Lai's assignment, required more than glass lantern slide lectures, textbook instruction, or standard voiceover training films. It exceeded the possibilities of standard military classroom pedagogy. Len Lai, pictured here <clears throat> on the right at the editing table, brought a new filmic approach and an unusual background to educational filmmaking. By the time the New Zealand-born director began working in live-action documentary in 1941, Lai had gained acclaim for his direct cinema, produced in conjunction with Basil Wright, Alberto Cavalcanti, and John Grierson, for which he was known for painting, scratching, and stenciling directly onto film. Here on the left is a single still from the animated film he made called Trade Tattoo, in which he had begun incorporating documentary outtakes 
which is to say live action footage. Stenciling, tinting, and line animation were super added to documentary outtakes from famous films like uh, Basil Wright's film Nightmare. The result, it must be said, does, at least to me, call disruptive camouflage patterning to mind. Lai's 1,600-foot two-reel film, Killer Be Killed, was shot on black and white 35-millimeter stock in Chobham Wood, Surrey, England. It was edited on Oxford Street in downtown London in September 1942. The 17-minute film has two main on-screen characters and no voiceover. It can be broken into three acts, and I just want to kind of try to talk really quickly about how I think this film works. I'll describe the first act and the third act, and then I'll discuss the second and lengthy act in some detail. So the first part of the film, like the first three minutes, depicts the killing of a German sniper by a well-camouflaged British sergeant. The British sergeant is exposed to the viewer through a process of a kind of kinetic identification that is also objectification. The 22nd opening shot of Killer Be Killed begins as a pan downward, the camera focusing on a field, a break between two wooded areas. The pan settles, and at the same point, a concealed man in the lower left corner begins to inch his body slowly forward as he writes himself into position. The shot objectifies him, turning the British person into a specimen to first identify and then observe, then eventually to emulate and move beyond. The British man then kills the German sniper. Act three, so skipping over the central part of the film, returns to the opening scene. There's been a kind of flashback, which is the second part. And, in, and at the end, we have the dead German. Reconnaissance planes fly overhead, implicating the viewer and the filmmaker in a kind of logic of camouflage, um, as we, like the characters in the film, become subject to a kind of aerial photographic gaze from above. And at the same time, the British sergeant goes out, collects the dead body of the, um, of the, uh, of the German, and um, kind of redresses him so that he looks, uh, he looks like a British soldier, and then that attracts all these other Germans to come out, and uh, then he shoots them all, and happy ending. <laughs> so over the course of these three acts, the viewer is moved from a position of distance from the film to one of proximity or immersion. This is a process of enlistment through radical shifts in the representation of time from beginning to end. Over the course of the first two acts of the film, the script consists of two voices going back and forth, a sort of conversation between the Englishman and the German that only the viewer can hear. So you kind of hear these internal monologues on both sides. As point of view shots move from the perspective of the model person and the model enemy, the thoughts of each are voiced aloud. So here you can just see the point of view of um, point of view shots of, of both the German and the and the British, the British, uh, the British sergeant. This is a performance of of mimesis in a way that is, in my terms, productive. So in some ways, you're being asked to kind of inhabit the position of one and then the position of other of, of another. Um, but in the process, it's kind of producing a new kind of identity or positionality. Um, in essence, one becomes like the filmmaker immersed in the filmic and natural ecologies being depicted. An oscillation between the model self and the model other implicates the viewer in the position of another kind of invisible character, which is the filmmaker. Over the course of the psychological and narrative core of Killer Be Killed, which is this kind of second act, the model person transforms himself from a position and appearance of vulnerability to one of proper concealment 
And at, by the end, actually, the British sergeant is neither visible to the filmmaker nor to the Nazi. Act two, then, is a flashback summation of the previous five hours, during which the sergeant intuits and enacts strategic camouflage. The sergeant garnishes his body so as to disappear into the landscape and into the film. At the beginning of the second act, the viewer is seeing primarily from the perspective of the German Nazi sniper. But by the end, the viewer is seeing through the eyes and the body of the British sergeant, as well as from the perspective of a kind of disembodied filmmaker. So act two culminates in the stock counterstock sequence, of which we've already seen a clip. And here I'm just playing the same clip again. The camera follows the sergeant and the sniper as they each simultaneously seek the other while concealing themselves. At earlier points, such as in the opening pan, hiding and seeking are conceived of as kind of static activities. But now the field of action is explicitly dynamic. Stock counterstock involves resolving the simultaneous movement of one's body through space and immersion of one's body into that space. In this sequence, the camera's presence and movement, both within and between points of the environment, as distinct from that of the model person or the model enemy, is manifest. The camera moves over and through the ferns, caressing the brush like human skin. And in fact, Alberto Cavalcanti, this filmmaker, um, later commented on, on how similar in some ways a lot of this, this the, the way in which Lai managed to shoot moving through the brush actually resembled a lot of Lai's uh, tactile kind of hands-on painting and filmic, sort of painted animation from earlier. The filmic image flirts with the leaves and underbrush. The camera movement would seem to invite the viewers into a sensual experience in relation to and within the film and within the, the world depicted therein. So, sorry, Where is this? I claim that two shots in particular mark the culmination of the film's form of education and dynamic camouflage. And so actually, we can see one of the shots on the, on the right. The camera emerges, as in the moments marked by these stills, as a third party in the stock counterstock. So it's sort of like the, the camera itself, or the filmmaker, him or herself, actually becomes part of the act of camouflage. It moves alongside both sides of the stock, all the while unseen, perfected in its own kind of performance of hide-and-seek. The film itself comes to serve as the viewer's own disguise. She is wrapped into a world in which one sees out but is invisible. A second skin, this is film, is chameleonic clothing, the culmination of an education in the logic and phenomenology of strategic concealment. Moving back, as Lai had once said in relation to his 1930s direct animation, I've been reduced to painting on film or scratching on film, not that I want to, but because I have to, because I have to learn how to deal with the control of color and three-dimensional motion in the world. This statement, and in fact reflection on Lai's early animated film works, are productive here in fleshing out a model of film craft as field craft. In Trade Tattoo, which we see, um, we just saw a short clip from. In addition to painting and drawing over the frame lines, Lai used outtakes from classic documentaries as elements of a filmic collage. Patterns applied via stencils become concealment measures. Collage and application of color flatten out objects against their moving backgrounds. 
Lai actually explicitly depicted the thematic of environmental mimicry as filmic artistry in other animated films from the pre-war period, right, in a kind of happier and more upbeat time. Specifically, his short called Rainbow Dance from 1936. Produced by John Gerson, Rainbow Dance puts front and center the idea of the human subject as object of strategic color concealment. A guiding theme of Rainbow Dance is in fact chameleonic coloration. A city dweller carrying an umbrella is transformed through animation into one who blends in with the rural landscape. The dancing man enacts the role of visual chameleon on film. He wears a costume, a second skin, colored on film that allows for chameleonic color change in relation to the shifting colors of his woodland environment. Like an octopus on land, the dancer's signature changes from hunter green to apple green to white speckled with yellow and so on throughout the visible spectrum. But the mode of color change of what appeared to be the man's chameleonic performance for the camera was the artist technician's own painstaking application of paint, filters, gels, and other kinds of strokes. This is then a dynamic general resemblance that is, to quote the surrealist anthropologist Roger Calois, whose essay Mimicry and Legendary Psychasthenia was also published in 1936, something of a process of, quote, depersonalization by assimilation to space through processes morphological and material, close quote. The anonymous silhouette moving through space and time can be understood as a stand-in for both the artist and the film subject, subject positions converging in crypsis. By the end of 1942, the National Screen Service, acting as the film Killer Be Killed's distributor, had placed Killer Be Killed into release throughout the United Kingdom. A January 1943 review in the magazine documentary newsletter praised the finished film as without a doubt one of the most exciting ever made. And that August, as Lai was putting the finishing touches on his next military documentary project, somewhat self-reflexively titled Cameramen at War, a print of Killer Be Killed had made its way to New York City. So just to conclude, the educational aspect of Lai's film, I argue, is precisely not instruction in the performance of precise behaviors that directly mimic a model. Rather, the instruction is in how to immerse oneself simultaneously into the film and into the environment. The viewer learns how to disappear into the very film she is watching. The result, of a, the result is a version of that film constructed in the process of viewing, a productive cut in which the self is both inserted into and rendered invisible within the space between nature and media, where both predator and prey intermingle. Which brings us to part three, blindness. So what I'd like to do now is show a piece of a work in progress, which again is somewhere between a work in progress and a finished short film, titled Blind. So a blind is in fact one way not to be seen, a space to hide from one's chosen game. Here, just to give a sense of, of, uh, of the sort of inspiration in using the title blind, um, here are some pictures of uh, a bird blind, actually a bird blind built for bird photographers made in 1892. Um, I think you can probably, can you see the man in this bird blind? So there's the, there's the man and he's, he's trying to hide from these birds that he's trying to photograph. And here you can't even see him. Here you can see a figure occupying the Mylar blind I constructed as part of a team including Dan Hazel and Etienne Benson um, last summer. It's Mylar skin or hide, I would say, combined the concealing nature of reflection with transparency. 
Again, so you can see um, this is a visitor. Um, actually, it's not a visitor. It's one of us. Um, I think it's one of, one, of, one of my collaborators trying out our Mylar blind um, on, the, on the right. So now I'll screen a short film I made based in part on this project, and I'll look forward to discussing it afterwards. Let's see. Actually, is there an overhead light? Maybe we could turn off. Maybe. Well. Maybe there's window shades. Ah, okay. Chalkboard lights. Oh, that's nice. General lights. All right. And I, there's a little bit of hum in the sound system, but hopefully it can just be part of the atmosphere. These got brighter back there. Those got I want to say it was isolating, but I think detaching is more accurate. I mean, there was an instant sense of ambiguation. I found it very difficult to define myself, that sense of one's own skin, the limit it represents, the stability it provides, the comfort it gives. Yes, it was socially detaching as well. I felt as though I couldn't communicate, not aware at first of how frightening I appeared. My facial gestures were concealed. Body language cues were lost. say it wasn't comfortable. There were many moments when I had been sitting or standing still, when people would get that startled look on their faces. They had literally forgotten or not noticed at all there was a person right beside them. I became eyes without a body, eyes without a self.
something just weird happened with the, the sound. Do you have any? Yeah, all right. Sorry about that. It's like half the sound just went out. Yeah. Any idea? It's either your jack <coughs> or this cable. Can you try mm. playing it again? That sense of intrusion I've been feeling from the environment. I think so, maybe. Sounds terrible. Yeah, it really does. Sorry. Yeah, it's weird. Um, you know what? To somebody we could try. Huh? Let's see. No. Um. Hmm. Let's see. You know what? Do you just have another? Um, I could just try another computer. Or maybe I could. Something very odd about. Um, all right. All right. Trying to give some. What well, sounds fine coming out of my. Uh, Is it in the right? I think so. All right. I think that's better. Maybe it was the core that went out? Maybe. Huh. I don't know. Let's see. What should we do? Just try it again. All right. Now in a very dark moment, remembering a childhood dream in which I was falling in total darkness. No stars, no body, no sense of orientation. Nothing at all to see or feel or cling to, just this endless gut-turning feeling, like when a plane takes an unexpected dip. I remember telling myself, this feeling, falling in darkness, is the only genuine thing in the world. Though with all this noise now, it's hard really to let myself believe that anymore. Yes, I've been close to death twice, receiving a dose of codeine early in college that sent me into anaphylactic shock. I remember moments when I lost track a bit of where my body starts and stops. Like that numb Novocaine feeling, there's this ambiguous tingling feeling that you sort of oscillate within. All right, well, sorry about the little sound glitch. <laughs> but, yep. Okay, great. Well, thanks. So this is being recorded.
started, and um, this is not a microphone in the usual sense. It will amplify your voice, but it will send it to the recorder. So just ask, raise your hand, and I'll give you the mic. If anyone wants to see uh, the full um, the full thing with like proper sound, uh, I have DVDs. So just ask. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Hannah, for the very exciting film uh, and presentation. The, the the question that I have the question that I have relates to um, two things that seems seem to be two sets of things that seem to be playing together in this film. One is the, on which you highlight is this play between form, uh, color, and environment on the one end. Mm -hmm. On the other is the kinetics that are making that happen, mm -hmm. which is the mobility. Mm -hmm. Now, my sense is that um, the role of mobility in, in both enabling and um, uh, undoing camouflage could I think in, in, in your analysis could come out a little bit more. Um, because what we see are, are the materials that are coming to assemble the camouflage. Um, not just in terms of the uh, non-human material, or, but also the human material that is coming into play. But as the, what, what you later showed us is showing, there's a lot of movement that is going on. Um, for example, when the um, British soldier and the German soldier are stalking each other. Mm -hmm. um, for me, the death of the German soldier illustrates the limits of camouflage. Mm -hmm. It illustrates the unhinging of camouflage by mobility. Mm -hmm. Right. There comes a point where uh, the form that is camouflaged becomes a silhouette and is exposed to danger mm -hmm. and is ultimately killed. So it could, it could make a, an even more powerful case for you to try and go a little further in trying to theorize and amplify the role of mobility in, in what you're talking about. Uh, my name is uh, Clapton Mavunga. I, I, I teach in SDS. Thank you. Well, I think that, um, I mean, that's a, those are, that's a really good point. I think that um, one of the issues with camouflage in general, right, and one of the reasons why thinking about moving film is a really useful way to understand camouflage a little better is that in general the way that camouflage works best is if everyone is really still. Like that's the way animals tend to hide, right? Like you can have the best patterns in the world, but if you're moving, you're going to get seen. Whereas if, if everything remains really still in a scene, it's extremely easy to not be detected. Like unless you're, unless you're like bright red. Um, in the context of the film actually, and um, I mean, unfortunately, I couldn't show the whole, the whole film, but one of the reasons why, in the end, the German sniper is, gets killed, right, or one of the ways it's framed, is because what he has is like a very uh, fancy, pre-printed, well-designed, like, Nazi camouflage pattern. He has like a, like a government issue, right, a kind of like SS camouflage pattern that he's been given. And he also has all these like really up-to-date, fancy German lenses on his rifle sights and really good binoculars. He's got all this equipment, but what he doesn't have is like an effective way to move. And one of the reasons why, at least in the story, why the British sergeant is seemed to kind of win is that he's able to move effectively and in the process of moving, like really effectively mobilize the, the artifacts of his, of his environment. 
So, so the, British, the British sergeant doesn't have an, an, a uniform. The British sergeant doesn't have this like pre-printed iconic camouflage. Um, and it's because of, it's it sort of, in some ways I feel like, like in a way what the death of the German shows is the, is the ineffectiveness of a kind of static pre-printed camouflage. Um, but I don't think, I, I think that the aspiration here is that, is that you can move and hide at the same time. Is it then possible, I want to stretch that further, is it not possible to see mobility as a kind of camouflage under specific circumstances? Yeah. Uh, because one would say that perhaps it was precisely because the British soldier was able to deploy mobility as camouflage mm -hmm. and to reverse the matrix mm -hmm. in a way that the German... Uh, was probably a shed too late to do or couldn't do. Yeah. In which case his sense of camouflage remained caught in the ability to steal things. Yeah. To keep them still. Yeah. Instead no, I of think, yeah. moving with. Well, yeah, I mean, and that actually goes really well with the argument that I make about the connection between this film's kind of use of, of, of dynamism and motion in relation to camouflage and the filmmaker's earlier work. Um, as, an, as a sort of avant-garde experimental filmmaker. Because in Len Lai's films in the 20s and 30s, what he keeps talking about over and over and over again is trying to create a film that's pure motion, right? That in taking out the photographs and taking out the kind of photographic substrate of, of filmmaking, that he's, he's trying to create a kind of sculpture or a, a kind of effect of pure color and motion. Um, so definitely... Um, the idea of mobility as camouflage is really critical there. It does sound pretty cynical for the relation between the British low-tech approach to World War II and the German high-tech. I mean, it sounds like a wonderful propaganda film, not just a training film, but a propaganda film, to say, innovate and don't rely on the sort of high-tech approach. What comes to mind, too, I mean, you've framed this in terms of um, the photographic gaze, which is, which is interesting, which sets interesting limits, because in terms of mobility, um, the razzle-dazzle treatment of, um, of ships in the First World War comes to mind, where that really only works if they're in motion. If they're not in motion, they look ridiculous. I mean, they stand out. But if right. they're in motion, it makes targeting quite difficult. Um, so that right. would be a good example of camouflage that only works... Right, that's a great, yeah, that's a really, uh, and actually it doesn't really work, even in the... I don't know, they always look like, they stand out like sore thumbs when they're uh, still... No, see, if that, if that razzle-dazzle, if those dazzle-painted ships work, we'd still have dazzle-painted ships. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, they're underwater. Uh, hi, yeah, Ian Condry, CMS and Foreign Languages Literatures. Thank you, great talk, uh, really mm -hmm. interesting. You know, what I hadn't thought of before it was, and really came out in a very interesting way in your talk was the, uh, the interaction between the technologies of surveillance and ideas of camouflage, right? And, and that I, I, I sort of had this idea of camouflage, but not its connection to certain, especially photographic technologies. And, and I guess what it made me think about or wonder about is, 
is how things change when it's a kind of digital surveillance that goes on today. You know, I mean mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, and, and is it a different model of camouflage that has to happen when it's our ATM cards, our credit cards, our easy pass, our swiping cards to go into the parking garage that are in some ways the more uh, insidious forms of surveillance that can be used for all sorts of ends, uh, including from marketing to uh, law enforcement. Um, and I guess I was, uh, it got me wondering, I don't know if, if this is too far afield from the kind of work you're doing, but I was curious what kind of parallels and what kind of differences might emerge. I mean, I, one of the things I was thinking as well, you know, if you're stopping surveillance now, and you know, we've seen all these surveillance cameras and all the things they catch of the London terrorists and the, the planes going into the Pentagon, and, uh, and, and that those, the, all those images are there, but then also you have these, I was thinking of the laser pointer too, uh, that you can dress up to disguise yourself as a London street, or you can put a laser pointer on that camera to blind the camera. Right, and isn't sort of a digital surveillance more like that ladder than dressing up in an outfit? Uh, you know, a kind of befuddle the watcher rather than cover uh, the person being observed. I, and I hadn't thought this through, but uh, I was curious uh, if there might be parallels or differences that, that you thought of in terms of the visual surveillance versus a kind of digital, uh, more contemporary, what I imagine as a, a contemporary kind of surveillance. Well, it seems like. Um it's funny because I, th I sort of thought that um, where your question was going was different from where it went. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, where would you like it to go? <laughs> no, I, I, like, I think no, you asked a much more interesting question. Not, not that, than the one I thought you were going to ask, but um, <laughs> um, people often ask this question, which is an interesting question, like, so what's up with the digital camouflage, right? Like the army, the army switched over five. Oh, yeah, the pixelated, the pixelated camouflage, right? Now you're over it, right? Well, I don't know. It seems the same. I mean, I, I believe it works better or not, but right. I was curious in a different kind. Right. Right. So, I, right, your question, I think, actually um, is a really interesting one, but I think that, um, you know, in some ways, I'm not talking about the present or about Easy Pass yeah, cards, but. But, but no, but, but, but I think that, um, and I, I've been trying actually not to talk about the present, because whenever I talk about the present, then people tell me I'm being presentist, you know, and, and, and <laughs> um, but I think it raises an interesting question, right, and a way to think about it would be to say, okay, well, in World War II, actually, right, you already have, like, Morse code, and you have sonic deception, you have all, and so in a way, you already have all of these other modes of, you have sonic camouflage, right, and it's even called camouflage. And so how does that, how are those kinds of um, confusing your enemy by, by, by code breaking and, and, and those kinds of trickery, um, radar, all that stuff's already going on. How does that relate to this more visual model of, um, of, of camouflage? And that's something I've definitely thought about. Um, my feeling is that, um, it's a very vivid color. My feeling is that, um, this is just my feeling. My, my, my thought is that actually the first camouflage is visual camouflage, is this kind of, and it's, it's in particular visual optical photographic camouflage. And I actually kind of think that the language that that is all grounded in, in a way, actually kind of sets the tone for things like sonic camouflage, for a lot of things that kind of come later or come after. And I think that, um, 
the basic idea, right, that the way that you hide from some kind of surveillance is by kind of like projecting yourself into the position of the, of the person who's going to be creating and then interpreting those, those, those signals. Um, and then to kind of take the media that they're working with or the, the surveillance technologies that they're working with and kind of cut them up and incorporate some little bits and pieces from whatever you have around you that's separate from what they have um, seems like a pretty good model to think about a lot of other different, different kinds of, of surveillance and counter-surveillance situations. But my sense is that it actually does have a kind of optical visual um, origin point. Um, although I think, you know, in the, in the 50s, you start to get a lot of this kind of operations research game theory stuff, um, which seems to then kind of maybe go down a slightly different, different road. You know, that, that, that in a way, I wouldn't want to overstate the sense in which kind of counter radar detection, you know, counter radar measures are, are all based on some kind of ghillie suit model. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for this presentation. It was very, very inspiring. And it's not a very uh, specific question, but the things that uh, I pointed you, something that you pointed out and was very inspiring and thought provoking for me was the point of, about the reflection. And it came to my mind the question if it's the best way of hiding from your enemy or surviving to them, it's reflecting them, mm -hmm. or if. Uh, people become in some way blind when they say themselves are reflecting in a mirror. And so all those uh, points about reflection and camouflage, it was very, very interesting. And I wonder, what do you think about, if you can say something more about it? Um, ah, sorry, I'm Gaia Scagnetti, and I'm a postdoc in the design lab. Um, you know, that's great. I want to point you. <laughs> to my, um, my, my collaborator, Dan Hazel. Can I, can I, because um, <laughs> um, Dan Hazel is my architecture, my architect collaborator um, who has really inspired me to think a lot about the relationship, I think, between um, concealment and reflection. Um, and uh, I think that the material that we worked with in the installation that is like kind of the basis for this film, um, which was this mylar, um, is just fascinating because it seems to materialize um, absolutely this, th the relationship between reflection and, and observation, right? Because the close, well, Dan introduced me to this fascinating and fabulous material, which I had previously only encountered on um, balloons, you know, mylar balloons. Um, but that you know you, you that you're that it hides you. It creates this kind of reflected space. But then when you get up right to the right to the end of it, right, when you get up right close to it, it becomes a window that allows you to see through it. Um, and uh, I found that you know kind of beautiful in a way. Um, I mean, more generally, I think that um, this this question about reflection. Um, Becoming a way to hide from others or a way to hide from yourself seems um, like a, it seems kind of huge. <laughs> but I don't know if Dan has any, um, any. Thanks, Hannah. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the, ref the uh, Hannah and I, I'll just explain a little bit about our relationship or kind of how we work together on this. Um, 
the the mylar blind was um, this kind of three that appears in in the Hanna's film was a construction that was built out on Bumpkin Island um, last summer, and um, Etienne, I mean um, Colin Kennedy, he is here. He Colin wrote the the text um, the for for the that appeared in the film, and. Um, the the issue of of reflection in camouflage is something that I had been exploring in some of my architecture. I'm an architect, and um, and it's something about camouflage that for me is is a kind of um, interesting way of mimicking the environment through optical illusions as opposed to the way that a sniper suit does it, which is to literally don green, you know, twigs and stuff like that. And so for me, there's, you know, I'm by no means conversant in the kind of um, probable Freudian aspects of all of this, but um, I don't want to go there. But for That's me... That's what I meant when I said it's huge. Yeah, I guess, uh, well, um, but for me, I guess I'm interested in it architecturally as a kind of, um, as an illusion and as a kind of void, as this kind of in, inscription of a kind of voided space that becomes positive through this kind of optical work. And then the effect that all of that has on this kind of spatial perception, which is grounded in a kind of personal um, bodily understanding of the individual in space and the kind of in some ways the kind of evaporation of that physical space into this kind of thin plane this this kind of thin surface and at the in the blind on bumpkin island it gets all crazy i'd never worked with mylar before and the wind that you see there was completely unexpected we were kind of the original vision i think was to have this kind of very zen-like um, uh, kind of still space. And it turned out to be this wind machine that was incredibly loud and weird and, and, and surprising in that way. So it, had, it, it kind of changed. It was fun. Anyway. And then in your last, the piece that you've done where 
text on the script brings the viewer into a That's yeah. It's interesting. Uh, definitely a really an interesting, uh, an interesting, very interesting comment. Um, I don't know uh, if um, you you speak as if as if you have a kind of certainty about how the third piece is operating. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I mean, what did you? I, I'm actually like. So so, what did you think that you were being brought into? Like, did you feel like the um, in the third piece? Do you feel like the 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 voice is it's bringing you into the mind of the the filmmaker who's inside the blind? I had the feeling of being inside the blind. You had the feeling of being inside the blind. Did you have and the feeling? Not quite of being inside the uh, the costume, but a closer connection than in Killer Be Killed. There was more. Did you feel like, did you feel like the voice was the voice of the person in the blind, the person you were looking at? Yeah, I wasn't sure, but it invited you to think about it in a way that you wouldn't get with the distinct, uh, yeah, with the distinct mm. voices of the British and the and the German soldier, or the objectification of that pre World War II uh, training film that you described. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, thank you. That's that's nice. That's <laughs> Hannah, maybe a question about. I mean, you've because of the photographic framing, and this is to in part your answer to Ian. Sort of flip back to the period in which you're working, and that's terrific. This is also a period when film stocks are changing a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just looking at some photos from the just after this period, but let's say 46, 47, 48. The same material shot with uh, color stock and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, panchromatic. But in the earlier 40s, late 30s, it's, it's shifting among various, various spectra are visible on black and white film. Yeah. And obviously that bears pretty heavily on what you can see or not see. And uh, was the camouflage in this period, was there a discourse that was responsive to changing photographic um, sensitivities? And um, yes. So that's a great. Good question. I, actually, there's two kind of interesting discourses that I think are related to, to that. On the one hand, you have, especially in World War II, um, this great concern with, you know, less in terms of personal concealment, but more in terms of like large scale. We have to conceal like this entire town or this whole factory concealment. There's a real concern with like, how can we create camouflage that will both be effective against panchromatic and infrared film and orthochromatic films? So how are we going to keep up with all of these different film stock, you know, these film stocks. And so you have all these people that are kind of testing out camouflage with different kinds of film and then analyzing them with different kinds of lenses or different kinds of kinds of eyes and actually it's during this period when there's a big interest in bringing in more colorblind people to work in camouflage development because colorblind people in general are better able to detect camouflage uh, across a broad range of um, black and white film stocks like the orthochromatic the panchromatic because they have these higher better abilities at the you know hue-finding hue, hue um, abilities. Um, but then the other thing that I've still been kind of trying to work out is um, a lot of the people that were really uh, working in camouflage in World War I 
and then in the 20s and the 30s, kind of kept working on it after World War I, um, were also people that were really involved in um, the development of color film stocks, like all of these different Dufay color, Technicolor, all of these folks, these engineers that were working on developing those, those new kinds of technologies, a lot of them were also camouflage officers and then also went on in World War II to work in new techniques for developing uh, anti-detection anti devices against those kinds of film stocks. So that's something that I think is very kind of relevant and, and uh, interesting. Yeah, and there's part of that that actually is sort of curious in terms of shifting from what we would call the visual domain to something else. I mean, I know the Germans were doing, in the Second World War, um, they were doing experimental work with television guidance systems for torpedoes that, and for bombs that was what we would today call like heat-seeking missile technology, right? That light at a certain point, it's also heat. And the, this was an optical system, but it was cued to kind of search for heat not in terms of temperature, but a kind of radiance to, you know, beyond the human visual spectrum. Yeah. And, and that modulation from the, a visual domain to another domain is, is, is really kind of interesting. And yeah. I guess a slippery slope in terms of um, what counts as the photographic. Right. I mean, when, right, once you have the infrared, yeah. right, what does count as the photographic? Um, or what doesn't count as the photographic, I guess. More to the point, yeah. 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 Other questions? Hi. Hi. Um, I'm Lana. Uh, Lana Z. Kaplan. I'm a filmmaker and artist. And I had a film question for you. Because um, as I'm watching your film, I'm thinking about how you camouflaged the camera. Because it's all reflective. <laughs> Um, so I was thinking of that as, the, as the, another layer of camouflage that you had to consider. And then also I was um, assuming, but I couldn't pick out the uh, camouflaged person in the road footage in mm -hmm. the film. And I was wondering if there, if there was some camouflaged person moving through. How would I know? I think that um, in the first, uh, in the, it might have been in part of the film that got a little garbled by the um, sound issue, but there's this one part where um, the narrator says, or the speaker says, the photo shoot and the mylar and the hilltop facing Fort Revere. And there's a point at which you see the camera reflected in the, um, in the blind, um, and it sort of calls attention to the whole piece is being framed by this act of, of filming. Um, so there's one point at which um, actually you see that, you do see the, the, the camera. Um, certainly not having the camera in the, reflected in the, in the mylar was something that I was um, concerned about. Um, like I wanted to be sure. Um, I actually wasn't planning on really making this film per se. I was just documenting the project. Um, and, uh, and so as part of documenting the project, I wanted to document it without my camera, which wasn't a particularly um, scenic, you know, wasn't such a nice camera that I really thought it had to be like reflected. Um, but so I did, I did think about that. But then I, I put in, in the film, um, some 
shots that show the camera as a way to kind of, I guess, yeah, call attention to precisely that how hard it might be to avoid having a camera reflected in mylar. Um, as to the question of whether or not there's somebody hidden on the path, um, I, I say no comment. <laughs> <coughs> okay, well listen, I want to thank you very much, Hannah, for, um, for doing this tonight. And we have a uh, meager but tasty treat. Oh, wonderful. CMS, CMS wine. CMS yes. wine? You guys have your own winery? Exactly. <laughs> Gosh, STS has to get on it. <laughs> so, um, I love it. So thanks Thank you so much. much. And just a few words. Normally, we meet every Thursday night. This coming week, we will not. It's a CMS town hall, and that's sort of an in-house um, thing. But in two weeks, the communications forum will meet on a Thursday. That'll be with Juan Williams, who somehow brokers the space between NPR and Fox. So um, <laughs> that'll be in two weeks. Thanks very much.